there we go. Uh, today I'm going to talk to you about the mysteries of the Epiphany and the Incarnation. And um, when I uh, was thinking about this, then we prayed this morning at vigils this antiphon, Aqua comburit peccatum hodie, apparens liberator, et rorat omnem mundum divinitatis ope. And I thought, wow, that's perfect. That's exactly what I want to say uh, for the meeting today. <laughs> so I wrote it down. And uh, kind of idiomatic translation would be something like, today water burned away sin at the appearance of the Savior uh, or the Liberator, and he bedewed the whole world with the power of divinity. Uh, and then I broke it down a little bit for you because I wanted you to uh, get a better sense of the, uh, the Latin words are not easy to translate one-to-one. So uh, water burned away sin today. That's pretty straightforward other than the fact that we don't normally think about water burning stuff, but that's actually what it means. Uh, Apparens liberator. So literally this means the liberator appearing, but it has the sense of, uh, there are a couple things about it. One is that apparens is what we're really celebrating throughout this whole season. So as Father Timothy mentioned in his homily today, uh, the incarnation is uh, kind of, what they call a theologumenon. It's a theological truth, but if nobody knows about it, um, it, it does, it's not without effect, but we can't really participate in the implications of the incarnation without uh, it being revealed to us. So one of the revelations that we find is say when the wise men offer frankincense to the baby Jesus, they're saying he's God. And this is not what you normally expect to see in an infant, right? So, um, there's this mystery revealed to us that this child is the son of God. And that being the case, then one of the things I really want to reflect on today is that human nature itself is revelatory of God. So just being human, paying attention to what it means to be human, uh, helps us to understand God. But we need that key. We need the key of Christ's incarnation to make sense of it. We can't we can't go by our own sort of humanistic ideas about what a human being is. We have to see what a human being is through Christ. Uh, so this is something that's revealed. And I'm going to say a little bit more about revelation in a moment. So the, the liberator, the one who's come to free us from our sins, has appeared. He's become manifest. We can, we can point to him and say, there he is, right? That's what John does. Uh, and so one of the reasons John the Baptist is so important is that he was the one who pointed out Jesus to the apostles. Uh, behold, there's the Lamb of God. There's one who takes away the sins of the world and they follow him, right? Et rorat omnem mundum. This word rorat, uh, you probably might connect with rorate cheli, uh, which means, again, it's uh, the ancients believed that the dew came down from heaven and then uh, uh, it was like rain that was invisible that then sort of emerged from the ground. Uh, some of the more sophisticated uh, thinkers in the Greek world and Muslim world recognized that how uh, water evaporated and condensed. But for most people who didn't uh, study science in those days, dew was a very mysterious thing. And um, so there's a kind of sense of infusion. If you know at the beginning of Genesis where 
Um, Adam and Eve don't have to irrigate, and there's no rain because the water just wells up from the ground. And there's a sense in which mysteriously life just emerges from the soil. Um, I read a fantastic book this past year, um, Against the Grain, it's called. And uh, I can't go into a lot of detail about it, but it's, it's kind of an economic history of the world from 10,000 BC to 2000 BC. <laughs> it's fascinating how much we know about people at, in that time. But one of the things that's very interesting is how much uh, uh, you know, the population of the world wasn't very high. And so most people clustered around riverbeds like the Nile, where the water would just every year would just kind of bubble up overflow and you didn't have to irrigate you didn't even have to plant really because one of the things that would happen is all this seafood would just get washed ashore and you just collected it and ate it and uh, there was a kind of freedom in that you also didn't need to have central planning uh, the only time that would happen is when there's a famine so you know when there was a famine uh, when Joseph was the administrator in Egypt um, he had to put in place a pretty draconian centralizing political structures, taxing, slave labor, and all this stuff to make sure that the people didn't starve. And that's a sign of kind of sin, right? When, when the dew doesn't well up and the world doesn't work anymore, and you have to do hard work by like actually tilling the ground and irrigating it. Um, that's what happens after sin for Adam and Eve too. So it's kind of interesting to me that uh, this story of Adam and Eve clearly is a memory that the Jews had of this transition from a kind of carefree economic situation where you just let the water of the world give you what you need and a, a more structured, difficult um, imbalance of power where you have a centralized state that makes you grow grain and then taxes you. You know, this is, that's a sign of sin in a sense. So uh, what, what, what this has to do with today's mystery is that and Jesus goes down into the water. He goes sort of under the earth. He goes to this place of this uh, life-givingness. But there's a dragon down there, it turns out, that's poisoned everything. And he kills the dragon. He kills Satan. And he purifies the waters. And now they once again bring life. Okay? And then we are incorporated into this mysterious life-giving process by our own baptism. And... Uh, these waters then just now pour out from the heart of the Savior and irrigate us. We don't have to do a lot of work. We can't save ourselves. We all know that. But I think sometimes we forget that uh, because of our baptism, the grace of God is being poured out in our hearts all the time. And it's, the question is, are we paying attention? Are we able to see it? Is it revealed to us or is it hidden from us? And that's what today's mystery is about. We want to see, we want to be illuminated by this grace. And so these mysteries help us to know how to, where to look and how to understand what God is doing in our lives. And finally, so the whole world has been uh, bedewed, infused with the power of divinity. So this is quite a statement. And again, I don't think we, we often take our own theology seriously enough um, by the way, uh, this is something Father Brendan's been saying for years, that we don't believe our own theology. And um, it occurred to me this past week that he was saying the same thing that Cardinal George used to say. And Cardinal George used to say, um, at least, I, I don't know if he said this publicly a lot, but in meetings of religious, he would often say, 
The crisis isn't a crisis of structures in the church, it's a crisis of faith. And that's a way of saying we don't believe what the church teaches. We don't believe our own theology to some extent. And it's not because we don't consent to it, but because we forget where to look and and what to assent to. We tend to get uh, distracted by various things because uh, the whole world is filled with God's glory now because of Christ's incarnation. If we know how to look for it, if we know where, where to see it, and then we can say thank you for it, this will eventually change us because we can see um, all around us that God is at work. God is saving us right now. Um, there are lots of distractions that get us caught up looking at things that are uh, scary, that are not very salvific, let's say. And uh, none of that is untrue, but to some extent we, we can look, what we forget, if we pay attention to all that stuff too much, we forget to look at what God is doing and say yes to that. So today he's revealed this. Uh, anytime, uh, you know, anytime we, we come into contact with water, we can give God thanks for it. Just think anytime we bless ourselves with holy water, it's, it's reactivating that, that grace of baptism. Uh, you know, there are saints who say things like, anytime you, you just touch holy water, the demons get afraid. Meaning, like all of those thoughts that make us anxious, uh, make us tired, or we feel like, you know, it's not worth the effort or whatever <coughs> bad thoughts we have, um, the demons that hide behind those thoughts don't like holy water because that's because Christ is there driving them out. <laughs> um, I think we often, again, we, we, we forget how all this works. Um, when Christ goes into the temple and drives out the money changers, I, uh, I'm among those persons who don't uh, read this as Christ being angry. It's simply, uh, if you're going to purify the temple uh, and get rid of all the money changers, it's, it's going to take a certain amount of force. <laughs> and uh, so he goes in there and he drives out the money changers with a whip of cords and so on. So this is what happens when Christ near, comes close to our souls. Oftentimes what we notice is that we feel agitated. There's a kind of tumult. But this is Christ driving the demons out so we can hang in there and wait be patient. Um, he will clear this up and hold on in faith. Believe that Christ will make it work. Um, uh, so uh, these, this is how we look at our own revelation and we accept it. And it changes the way we think about the world. It illuminates our minds. So we think differently with the light of Christ and not with the darkness of the world. Let me say a little more about revelation because this is something um, I come back to over and over again. And again, Father Brennan and I have been talking about this more intentionally recently because uh, I've uh, asked him to kind of step up his ministry as a retreat director. Um, We get a lot of requests for directed retreats for seminarians and young priests. And um, I I think Father Brennan is very good at this, uh, helping these seminarians who are struggling for whatever reason. Uh, or just need a retreat. I mean, every seminary needs to go on a retreat every year or five days. That's canon law. But one of the things we find is that young men who, are, are, who want to serve Christ, you know, they're, they're very zealous about the church, zealous about serving others and so on. Uh, it's easy to forget that our 
religion is revealed to us. Uh, what's the literal meaning of revelation? What's the literal? Where, what does it come from? Do you know? This, this uh, particle, V-E-L, uh, do you know what that means in, in Latin? Father Timothy, help us out. Uh, to, to, uh, to cover, Yes, yes. So revelation <coughs> is an unveiling. Okay, so our word veil actually comes from this, this Latin word. And uh, to reveal something is to take the veil away. And what this means is that our faith as a revelation uh, is looking at things that we could already see, but having the cover taken off of them so we can see what they really are and not what we would see otherwise if we were still living in sin or if the world was obscuring things. This is an ongoing process of learning to see God's creation as being infused with the power of divinity, right? So we can look at humble things and uh, assent to them. There's the famous uh, Canticle of the Sun of St. Francis of Assisi. He gives thanks to God for all of his creatures. And uh, it's a nice kind of nature poem. You can take it that way. Francis and Dominic were more concerned about a theological problem they experienced in their day, and that was the growth of the Cathari, or the Albigensians, who denied that there was anything good in creation. Okay? So uh, in order to be saved, you had to reject your body. You had to reject food. If you were one of the perfect, you ended up starving yourself to death. Uh, literally, I'm not making that up. Um, it's very close to what uh, St. Augustine experienced with the Manichaeans once upon a time. So it's a constant temptation uh, in uh, a cer- certain sort of uh, peripheral movements in Christian thinking. Uh, but I think it affects us today. There's a kind of divide between our spiritual lives and then the lives we live, you know, cheek to cheek, cheek by jowl in the world. Um, but Actually, there's no distance. The, the question is whether we can allow the Holy Spirit to point to where Christ is in each situation. And then if, if we still can't see it, to ascent to wherever he is, even if we don't feel uh, his nearness. Anyway, the reason I, I mention this with regard to uh, seminarians is that our tendency when, we're, when we have a spiritual difficulty is to try to look inward. That, that's my experience working with these young men, is that I want to try to feel or experience something, and I, I draw on my own resources, and that's very exhausting. And the idea of a revealed uh, a revelation is that God is speaking objectively to me. Uh, it's, it's for me just to listen and try to understand what he's saying. Rather than me looking inward, I can look outward. Um, and so one of the way I often talk about this, or I have talked about it, I don't know if I'll, I'll do these retreats myself, but I, I call it putting positive content in your prayer. So frequently what I hear is uh, that there's, say, a daily holy hour, and there's a lot of frustration because I try to sit there and still my thoughts and I get distracted and I start complaining about the rector or I start complaining about this class I've got to do and I said I feel bad because I'm not praying. And then it's just like, oh, one more hour wasted and there's the Lord in the Eucharist and I'm not paying attention. Well, part of the problem in my reading of it is that Christ is speaking to us with all kinds of instruments. He's given us many, many 
tools to understand what he's saying. First among them is the scriptures. So don't be afraid to sit down and read the gospel. Just, just listen to him speaking to you in the gospel. Don't be afraid when you're praying the Psalms. If you really feel like one of the lines of the Psalms communicates something to you, recite it for the rest of the day. Don't let go of it. Let him speak to you throughout the day. But let him speak out of what he's given us rather than trying to find something inside ourselves. Eventually, all this that he's speaking to us will connect with the life of Christ that's in us. Um, but that has to be revealed too. You know, that has to be revealed through this process of, of receiving the word from Christ um, rather than trying to sort of gin it up from inside. So the epiphany is this unveiling, this shining forth, this manifestation of God's presence here and now. And uh, the primary place we look for this, of course, is the sacraments. And this is why the Eucharist holds such an important place in Catholic theology, because when we look at the Eucharist, we say, there is Christ, there is the Son of God. Here he is coming to save us. When we receive the body of Christ into our own bodies, he is forgiving our sins, he's purifying us, he's strengthening us to live holy lives. So we can really believe this, and again, it's not something we do interiorly in the sense of we can't make ourselves holy or forgive our own sins or any of that. But we can believe that when we receive the Eucharist, our venial sins are taken away. We can actually assent to that. And that can uh, give us permission to relax and let Christ be in charge, right? Even if, you know, things look a little scary and whatever's going on in our lives at any given moment. Uh, but this sacramental center of the church in the Eucharist emanates forth into all of creation. So we can look anywhere and see God's glory. And uh, just recently I've been, uh, well, I, I've thought this for many years, but I, I got into a conversation about this uh, by email with a, a friend of the monastery who is a postdoctorate student in theology. And... Um, I think one of the difficulties, this, this, is, this is a little out there, but a difficulty we've run into is that uh, there was this incredible um, integrated worldview in the Middle Ages where if you've ever read Dante, that's probably the classic statement where you have the earth at the center of the universe and then you have the heavens radiating outward and everything inside relates to each other somehow. And so the church's theology shows you how all of this works and how God is using the stars and the planets to infuse grace into the world. Dante spends lots of time explaining it through the, the uh, teachings of the saints and Paradiso and so on. And then what happens is uh, with the discovery of the new world, with the discovery of, uh, with the overthrow of Aristotelian uh, physics, with the Copernican revolution where we no longer see the earth at the center of uh, the universe, the discovery of billions of galaxies, this is pretty different than how the Middle Ages looked at the world. Uh, <coughs> we haven't allowed, we haven't maybe spent the time to rebuild up some kind of integrated galact, uh, uh, universal worldview based on our contemporary science and, and anthropology and so on. And instead, we've, we've kind of tended to stick with this medieval view, which doesn't fit anymore. And so it means that uh, the world that used to shine very brightly with God's presence, it's a little bit murky now. But that's just because we, we've forgotten to do this 
this uh, watching. Uh, we've forgotten to let God reveal. I mean, why, why would God have um, allowed us to, to uh, discover these galaxies that we never knew existed until, I mean, it's only like 100 years ago that they figured out that Andromeda was a galaxy and not a star. It's very recent. Um, God, of course, is infinite, infinitely powerful. So he can do as he likes. And all these, you know, the immensity of the cosmos reveals God's splendor. There's no doubt about it. But we as, as Christians haven't interiorized this in, the, in a way of saying like, yes, I love the fact that God made these billions of galaxies. It's so amazing. And uh, there's nothing to be ashamed of. But then again, as I say, the, the difficulty that I've been working through is something like, um, how does it come about that God creates the world or the world has been uh, knocked off kilter by sin in such a way that we had this, this very strange experience of thinking that we knew, like in, in the church, we thought we knew where everybody lived in the world, and then we discovered there was an entire hemisphere that we didn't know about. And uh, like how to, how to see now, I mean, this I think was, this is part of the controversy of the Amazon Synod. How do we see God active, God's grace, um, preparing the way for the gospel in these cultures in North and South America? Uh, how do we say the same thing in, in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa? Because uh, many of those countries were only evangelized in the 19th century. Um, clearly, God's grace is great enough to you know, have been working through all this, but we, we need to adjust how we think about uh, salvation history because of uh, this revelation in a way. Um, so I think we can do it because we still have the Holy Spirit helping us. But oftentimes when, when we're challenged by science or something, we under the pressure of the need to say something, we kind of fall back on something that worked 500 years ago, but it doesn't really work anymore. So we need to just be patient and let God reveal through the actual uh, what he wants us to know. And this, I, this emphasis on the actual and that the world itself is revelatory goes back to what I said at the very beginning. Because Christ entered this cosmos and entered a human body, became a human body, all of uh, our experiences as human beings and the whole universe now reveal what God is doing. Uh, so we can be confident. Uh, God loves the world so much that he sent his only son to be with us. Um, I remember doing Lexio on that when I was a novice. And at that time we had a, there was a, some neighbor of ours who were selling drugs and it was very um, unpleasant dealing with the situation. And we would alert the police to this and um, the, uh, you know, for various reasons, the police didn't feel like this was a high enough priority to, to work on or whatever. And that's fine. But I remember doing Lexio one morning and I was sitting up in uh, you know, this solarium on the second floor of the uh, cloister and there's a fire uh, wood stove there. And I was sitting by the fire reading John's gospel. And uh, I read this passage, you know, Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. And I was looking right at this house of this family of drug dealers. Uh, yes, he came to save them. I can't hate them because they, they are persons whom God has chosen to love. And so however difficult the situation was, whatever action I took couldn't, be, couldn't neglect the fact 
that these are persons that, uh, that the, the world is sa- worth saving. <laughs> it's, uh, and as I say, then the world itself, because of the incarnation, can reveal uh, God's presence and his goodness. Uh, you know the, the Hopkins poem, God's Grandeur? Um, I'm very excited. Brother Dismas has really gotten into uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, who is a fantastic poet. Um, but that was part of his insight. And it wasn't uh, easily come to for him because he was struggling with a lot of things at this period in his life. But he held on to this uh, very kind of Jesuit idea that uh, um, God reveals himself through our everyday lives. St. Benedict wants us to look at this too. Uh, He says to the cellarer, who's in charge of all the tools of the monastery and so on, that he should treat all of the tools of the monastery as if they were the sacred vessels of the altar. And this is normally uh, understood by Benedictine commentators to imply that the rest of the community should do this as well. It's not just restricted to the guy in charge. And having been the cellarer for many years, I support this interpretation because if it's only up to the cellarer to uh, treat with reverence the, the tools that are dedicated to God's house, whether it be a, a lowly rake or a pencil or a... Um, what was I thinking of earlier today or something I was trying to be... Oh, I know, it was those headphones. So uh, we just replaced some headphones in the monastery and I was using them and I thought, uh, I need to set these down carefully. They're plugged in, the, the cable's not very long. And if I'm not careful, I'm gonna knock them on the floor and that would not be treating them like the vessels of the altar. So I need to be gentle. And, uh, but I'm, I have to admit, hope you don't mind me saying this, as the seller of the community, I didn't want to fork out another 40 bucks for another pair of headphones. <laughs> you know, so um, there's that too. But the root idea here is that, again, all of the, the tools of the monastery somehow uh, reflect God's goodness. So, uh, I, you know, I mentioned a rake, you know, the, the fact that certain types of metals, certain types of wood can be shaped into something that we can use to you know, be good stewards of God's earth. We can rake up leaves. We can, uh, certain types of rakes you use for gardening. And uh, they can help us clear stones out of the garden and grow beautiful fruits in our garden. Uh, this is all uh, this very quiet presence of God because these things don't stay in existence without him loving them. Uh, so we can... Uh, just look at anything and appreciate it, you know, we look at good woodwork. Some, sometimes uh, part of the implication of this is that we want to be good craftsmen. So um, uh, this is a difficulty in a kind of consumerist society uh, where you can get lots of goods cheaply. Um, there's some advantages to that. So uh, the fact that we get goods cheaply has one effect of uh, mitigating what has historically been sort of more general poverty, and especially in a world where we have 7 billion people now, we need to figure out ways to make sure everybody's got work and can support themselves economically and so on. But there's always a danger that, you know, a a pressed wood table versus an actual wood table. There's something about something that's not made very well that it starts to get a little 
harder to see God's presence in it because it's, it's at a remove from the nature of wood. And, you know, pressed board wood isn't, doesn't really have a, the same kind of God-given nature that wood or, or metal does. Um, but that maybe is just because I haven't given it enough contemplation. <laughs> maybe maybe uh, uh, wood board is actually a glorious thing as well. Um, some, somewhere in there, right? <clears throat> so, let me go back to our own baptisms now since we're, we're uh, talking about baptism. And, you know, we're moving now at this stage in the church's year. We very gradually turn from the mystery of the incarnation and the mystery especially of Christ's baptism to our own baptisms. And this means going through remembering the, the, the sort of church's memory of the catechumenate and our own decision to renounce sin, to work on ourselves, to receive this grace of baptism uh, in, uh, with, with a pure intention. So to get to Easter Sunday, having done our penance, having worked on our vices, having tried to plant the virtues, uh, so that we can take best advantage of the renewal of our baptisms at the Easter Vigil or at Easter Sunday. So let me say a little more about baptism. As you might know, in the early church, baptism was frequently called illumination, or the sacrament of illumination, or sometimes enlightenment. And it's interesting that uh, this idea of illumination or enlightenment is very prominent in the Advent and Christmas liturgies. Some of this has to do with the fact that the world in the Northern Hemisphere, at least, is dark this time of year. And uh, so we, uh, by the way, that's another interesting thing about sort of natural contemplation is that Christmas in the Southern Hemisphere is in the middle of summer. You know, so like in Australia, as you know, it's, it's quite warm there and that's part of the reason they're having these fires. Um, but I was in South Africa uh, eight, nine years ago now. And um, it was June, but it was, it was actually cold because they're kind of up in the mountains and it was winter. <laughs> and, uh, and they were talking about how like Christmas it's usually 95 degrees. And uh, so that's another thing. So the people who live in those places have to reimagine how God's uh, revelation is speaking through the blazing heat of summer at Christmas time, right? Uh, whereas we, we connect it with snow and things like that, right? So, but God can speak through any of these things. It's for us to assent to his Holy Spirit speaking in them. So illumination uh, in the Christmas liturgy I'll just say, uh, is connected to this idea, again, of theophany or epiphany. And we start to see it immediately on December 26th, because on December 26th, we celebrate St. Stephen. And what happens when Stephen is being stoned? What's that? He forgives. He forgives? That's correct. That's right. He does. And what else What else happens? So he, he because he's speaking, uh, he's, spe he's speaking to directly to whom at that point? Yeah, because I mean, part of it is his own preparation and, and uh, his ministry. But what precedes his being stoned, if you remember, is that he sees the heavens opened 
And he sees the Son of Man standing at God's right hand. And this, this is what actually provokes the crowd to say he's blaspheming, right? Uh, so Stephen sees suddenly again, the veil is taken away. And he sees there's God, there's the Father, there's the Son of Man standing at his right hand. That's true, we could see that now if we were given that gift of grace. But we can see it in faith, even if we can't see it with our eyes. He saw it with his eyes. Okay, so he underwent a kind of illumination. Ah, I see it now. In the suffering of the martyrs of the church, there is Christ. He's with them, right? How about December 27th is the feast of? Anybody? John? St. John? What can you tell me about St. John and the tradition of the church? Uh, Let me say, he, uh, I'll, I'll give you a hint. He wrote the book of Revelation. And what happens at the beginning of Revelation? The heavens open up and John sees uh, revealed what's actually going on in history. So the book of Revelation is all about interpreting the events of history as God sees them. Okay, And this is one of the reasons it's so difficult to understand because there's all this kind of uh, um, mystical language. And there, there are references to current events from the year 65 or 70 or something. We're not quite sure. It seems like it's about the time that Nero was persecuting the Christians in Rome. And so one of the questions is, how do we make sense of the persecution? Like, What, what does it mean when Christians are being brutally uh, slaughtered? Uh, does it mean that God's abandoned us? And John says, no, it doesn't mean that at all. Uh, and he shows, uh, he shows us in many ways what's actually happening, that the martyrs are uh, following Christ, following the Lamb wherever he goes. Uh, they are underneath the altar crying out for God's justice, all these things. But the key thing I'm, I want to point out here is that on St. Stephen's Day, we have Stephen looking at the heavens and he sees the reality, the spiritual reality. John looks at the heavens and sees the spiritual reality. They're all pointing this pointing this out to us, that even in, in this uh, humble church basement here, God is present if we could just see him, right? And we can see him with faith at, at this time, uh, as I mentioned a, a month ago, we live in this in-between time. We're no longer living in the shadows where we can't see the spiritual reality, but only kind of speculate about it. But we don't live in the fully revealed end times where we actually see God face to face. We see through faith and through sacraments, right? through symbols. We live in this middle period. Um, and uh, so John and Stephen both have the heavens open to them and are illuminated. So these are all these different ways of helping us to see what the Christian life is about. Once we get a sense of this, we realize um, what, what often happens when there's a manifestation of God, like God approaches people in the Old Testament or or there's a miraculous catch of fish, uh, or um, Isaiah, say, goes into the temple and suddenly sees the seraphim in reality. What's the response that most people have to this, God's manifestations? Fear and repentance. Fear and repentance, yeah, very good. Yes, Uh, this is Luke chapter 6, Jesus is preaching from Peter's boat 
And, and uh, you're going to get done with this homily. He says, why don't you cast the net out over the side of the boat? Peter's like, hey, you're the carpenter. I'm the fisherman. I've been doing this all night. Ain't no fish out there. But okay, since you're the Lord, I'll do it. And then he catches the fish and he, he gets down on his knees and says, Lord, depart from me, right? I'm not worthy. Jesus doesn't allow him to go away, but Peter recognizes his need to change, right? Because he's in the presence of God's purity, God's holiness, God's power. And uh, what we see in the, the example of Isaiah with his lips being purified or Peter being forgiven by the Lord is that the Lord is there to burn away the sin that we have, but he wants us to consent to us. He wants us to participate in this. And so he gives us the ascetical practices of Lent to prepare us to renew the grace of baptism. But this is already starting at Christmas because the whole point of the incarnation is Christ's sacrifice and our incorporation into his body and the the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, What happens on the 28th of December? Massacre of the the innocents, yeah. So the medieval church especially liked to meditate on the fact that Jesus' incarnation uh, is for the purpose of him dying so he can participate in our mortality. And uh, again, we don't usually think of Christ on the cross at Christmas time, but this was actually somewhat common in the Middle Ages. And to me, this is part of the, partly because they were more at home with this sort of contemplative view of the world where all things spoke about Christ. And so Christ is most clearly revealed uh, here. Um, this is my homily for uh, Epiphany on Monday. I mentioned that uh, most people didn't recognize Jesus when he was like this. But then there was this one centurion, right? He said, yeah, that, that's the son of God. So that's, that's what we're looking at. And, and John in his gospel actually makes it very clear that this is the, the key revelation of who Christ is, is his death, right? So this, this is why it's so important for us to meditate on the cross as well. All right, Um, so let me just say one more thing about uh, how our lives reveal uh, what it means to be human because of the incarnation. And for this, I'll I'll focus on the, the silent Christ during his years at Nazareth. So we know almost nothing about Jesus' life historically, from the time of his birth until his uh, public ministry. His public ministry, Luke tells us, begins when he's about 30 years old. And so that means, aside from a couple of stories we're told about him as a newborn and uh, his appearance in the temple at the age of 12, we have no uh, narrative. Nobody tells us, oh, uh, he started working in the carpenter shop at this age, or he used to play this game with the local kids, or whatever it is. Um, the Gospels tell us nothing about that. Why would that be? Uh, it seems like it might be kind of important, especially we, we tend to be more historically oriented in our world today. Well, I think it's because, again, we're invited to think about the fact that Christ went through all of the stages of maturation that we do. Uh, He lived in a family. Uh, He had to come in from playing to sit down for dinner when they all ate. Probably had to help with dishes. Um, uh, He had to learn how to read. Uh, Presumably his mother taught him how to read. Uh, 
Because we, we know he could read because when he appears in the, temp, the synagogue in Luke's gospel, he actually takes the scroll and reads it. Uh, so someone had to teach him how to read because that's part of being human. We don't, we're not born with those. We're born with the capacity, but we're not born with the skill. Someone has to teach us. So he had to be taught all these things. He had to be taught how to walk. Had to be taught how to uh, you know, work with other people. You could, you, you know, those of you who have families, you can do this better than I can. You know, what is it like having kids? Well, all those stages, and being a young adult, you know. Uh, Jesus was pretty old when he began his ministry to be an unmarried man. Was there talk about him? Was there something, was there, did the people question whether or not he was sort of too self-involved to get married? Uh, were there women in the village who were hoping that uh, he'd be, a husband, um, who knows? But we're free to speculate on this. You know, we don't. We're not. Our hands aren't tied by any particular details about what actually happened. What we draw upon is our own experience. What is it like to be a human being? Like, what's what was it like to be in a family, to be a kid? What was it like to be an adolescent? What's it like to be a young adult? What's it like to work a a full day? Um, uh, you know. At the time of his, when he was a young man, we do know that there was a, a new Greek city being built, up, Sephorus, which was only about six miles from Nazareth. <clears throat> you know, we were, we're told that Joseph was a tectone, which means he was not only a carpenter, but he was pretty, uh, he was more like, um, not quite an architect, but um, someone who was good at building things, right? So he knew how to build uh probably sheds and, and furniture and things like this. So um, maybe even buildings in, in full. So this, did, did the two of them take lunch boxes out to this new city and help with the building? Because there would have been a lot of work for builders there. Um, they must have done something, right? They, uh, uh, how did Jesus read the scriptures? What was it like for him to go to synagogue? All these questions, you know, and to, to reflect on these things is um, quite legitimate. And then to ask ourselves, like, why, what is it about family life uh, that reveals God? Uh, what is it about, uh, you know, part of it is just that none of us, uh, none of us comes into the world unconnected from other people. The same budding theologian I was uh, conversing with we were thinking about the problem of the enlightenment. And so one of the, I often bring up the, the figure of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, whose works I had to read diligently in college. And uh, uh, he's an interesting guy to be fair to him, but he, he's, he's wrong. <laughs> he's wrong. And um, two, two places that are significant, especially one of them for today. One is that, he looks at uh, human children as pure and then society is corrupting. So you, you, uh, if you contrast this with St. Augustine, Augustine looks at babies fighting over milk with each other and says that society teaches children how to be social, <laughs> right? How to live with other people. Because um, again, if you've raised children, you know, nothing against children, they're wonderful. But if you don't teach them how to share, they might not share. They might do things that are, they might be mean to each other. Um, you know, I remember being told 
And I'm sure I had to be told this because if I weren't, hadn't been told it, I might not know. You know, I had three younger sisters. Boys don't hit girls, right? You don't do that. You're the oldest, you're the boy. This is what's expected of you. This is how you treat girls, okay? And uh, so, okay, uh, this is what I do. And, uh, but had I not been taught that, and I, you know, I think we've all had, we can all remember a time where we did something wrong as a kid and got in trouble, right? And this means that children need parents. They need aunts and uncles, grandparents, teachers to say, yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> that's that's going to get you in trouble. So, so stop. And, and then, you know, children often don't stop when you tell them to stop. <laughs> you sometimes have to be pretty strong with them. And um, uh, so this is one place where I think Rousseau is wrong. Um, the second place is that for, for Rousseau and for the others who are kind of at the foundation of our modern liberal culture, the, the uh, atom or the molecule of society is the individual. Uh, for the Catholic Church, the, the fundamental cell of uh, the society is the family, okay? So we're never just individuals. We're always connected to other people. And I was trying to argue that the, uh, the Enlightenment is fundamentally anti-woman. My argument being this. Um, if a woman wants to have a child, uh, and many women do, uh, the idea that uh, we can exercise our freedom of association, say to abandon our child, is not, uh, it's not going to work to women's advantage. Because women, at least, are going to be attached to their child for nine months in the <clears> womb, <throat> and probably for a long time afterward when the child is nursing. Uh, so the, there's a fundamental relationship that's just built into the structure of the world, but it's felt more immediately by women than by men. Rousseau fathered several children and abandoned them all. Okay, he, he put them all in orphanages and, and homes. Um, and I, I don't say this to, to you know, be mean to Rousseau or anything. It's just to say that most times women don't feel this freedom of association in the same way. Um, and uh, uh, so now all this is to say again that these particular relationships that we have with our mothers, with our fathers, with our children, then because our fathers are children of somebody else and our mothers are children of somebody else and our aunts and uncles are brothers and sisters and children and parents and our cousins, all these relationships, again, reveal something about how God has intended for all of the human race to be connected to each other. You know, we're, we're meant to make up this body of Christ. That's the goal. Uh, and we have many ways of avoiding this reality, trying to get out of particular relationships. Um, and, I, and I don't say this to say like, well, we should stay in all relationships that they're abusive or something like that. Uh, but to say that, again, our own experience of the world can be drawn upon to reveal something about what God wants us to know. And there's a reason why the mother of God is so important in our theology. Uh, she reveals many things about the incarnation, uh, you know, uh, and, and about ourselves as a result. All right, I'm going to pause there uh, just so we have time for questions, because I imagine uh, uh, I have a tendency to kind of say things that are... Uh, uh,
Well, I, I mean to be provocative sometimes. <laughs> I, I, I'm not avoiding that in any way, but I, I don't want to leave you in the dark. So if you have questions or you have observations, uh, please tell me. Is it too much to ask mm -hmm. if you don't stop um, about Mary hoping to... No, I'd be happy to speak more about that. If I don't have time today, maybe next month I could continue on it. So, yeah, Harrison. Why, if there's an increased emphasis on science, uh, yeah. is there not an, an increased emphasis on natural theology? That, that's the problem, I think. And I think the reason is that um, uh, natural theology, that's, that's, I'm not sure I could get to the heart of that particular question without giving it some thought. But I would say natural contemplation is what's missing. So, um, so actually, this reminds me of one thing I wanted to mention. To have this contemplative outlook, to, to look at the world and see what God is revealing, Part of the reason we have difficulty in that is because of sin and vice. And so asceticism, uh, fasting, prayer, giving alms, uh, looking at trying to be patient, trying to uh, be chaste, all of these things dispose us to see the reality of things. And then we can start seeing things from a detached, non-possessive stance and allow God to show them, show up us what he intends. The problem with science is, especially what I call the technological mindset or the cult of technology, and I, I tell the brothers, the cult of technology is the enemy of contemplation. Because I look at things, and instead of receiving their meaning from God, I look at them as, as sort of raw material for realizing my own desires. And so I become possessive, manipulative, uh, and I'm not allowing God to speak I'm forcing my way onto everybody else. And, and uh, again, science, when it bleeds over into technology, there's always that danger. So I, I use this term, the cult of technology, because I don't think technology itself is bad. I'm not against, uh, say, improvements in farming techniques to feed more people. That's good. Um, the danger is that it changes the way we approach the world. We no longer can have like a harvest festival and maybe waste some of the grain just to celebrate God's bounty. And the fact that, that God has revealed uh, to us the genetic structure of these crops in such a way that we we're able to feed everybody now. You know, um, and it's an amazing thing. Um, I, I think most of you remember the, the 70s and 80s and all the terrible famines that were taking place in those days. And I was just talking to my sister about this, how... Um, going to church in junior high and collecting money to send to Ethiopia and stuff like that just had a very profound impact on both of us, the need to help those who are poor. Um, not that people aren't starving today still, but it's, it, you know, there's been a, an incredible revolution in food production that means that we can actually feed two billion more people today than, than we could 30 years ago. And we should thank God for that. Like somehow, you know, God, we, we shouldn't regret this, but as I say, there's always the danger that we, we take ourselves too seriously and our own wants too seriously. Um, so that, that, that's a question for each of us to ask in his own heart, you know. But I think that, that's at the crux of your question, that we don't... Um, science always tempts us to treat the world instrumentally yeah, rather than contemplatively. Right? What's expedient rather than what's true, right? Um, and sometimes to, to look at what's true and not expedient means 
we don't get what we want right away. We have to settle for things being less than satisfactory. Uh, but then that's a, a, an opportunity to again ask ourselves, why do I want things to satisfy me? Maybe God has a bigger uh, meaning in this. Does that kind of get at your yeah, question? Uh, I had someone recently texting me about, uh, he's like, I don't want to accept the world. You know, I don't, I don't want, you know, yeah, this is name. Yeah. I keep on bringing up Bardini. I'm only here like three oddly meetings a year now. Yeah. I always bring up Bardini, but it's such a shocking moment in that book when he says you have to accept the world as it is. Yes. And, you have, and I, have, I really was puzzled by that the first time I read it. Mm. Just last night, I read the chapter Rebellion in Brothers Karamazov. And Ivan says, I reject the world, right? Because God didn't set it up the way I want. And people suffer, and it's not fair. And he has a very good argument in a way. And, and in a way, we're all affected by that, because we all want to fix the world. And that's what Gardini is saying. To be a contemplative, we have to start by accepting what is given to us, and not trying to fix it. Not thinking we know better how it should be arranged. That's, uh, that requires faith. And there's Cardinal George's axiom again. You know, it's the crisis of our times is a crisis of faith. Uh, we're, we're not quite ready to trust. Should I tell my story about my grandmother? <laughs> my grandmother uh, prayed for many years that she would die in her own home. And she was telling this to my oldest uncle once on the phone. And he's a very devout man. Uh, does <coughs> annual retreats at New Mallory uh, Trappist Abbey in Iowa. He said, Mom, why don't you just uh, pray for God's will to be done uh, and, and just accept what, what he decides. There was silence for a bit. She said, nah, I don't trust him. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's, and my grandmother was, was a very devout person. And as it happens, she, she ended up uh, six years in assisted living and was fine with it. You know, she, she when the time came, she accepted it. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to trust God sometimes because we have things that we want and we have things that we think would be better. How many times, you know, these, these old cliches like, you know, when God shuts a door, he opens a window or whatever. Um, I'm not big into cliches, but there's some spiritual truth to this, which is that we might think we really, really, really want this. And then when we don't get it, um, are we open to the possibility that God has something better planned if, if, if we accept that he says no to this, um, you know, I'll, when I was a teenager, all I wanted was to be a professional musician. And I got to a point where it just clearly wasn't going to work the way I wanted. And, uh, but just at that time, you know, I met somebody who introduced me to monastic life, <laughs> which I hadn't been thinking about at all. But then I realized that a lot of the stuff I was doing in music prepared me for the monastery, probably better than had I been... Uh, an actuary, which is what my mother wanted me to be. <laughs> and I was good at math. Well, you're still the seller. I'm still the seller. Yes, I still do accounting. <laughs> yep. So, anything else? Yeah, Bob. I think Jesus may have learned to read at Hebrew school. He may have. It's possible. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, you know, he may have had teachers. And, I, I, you know. and again, I think just asking those questions itself... And meditating on that, you know, thinking about what Jesus would have been like at age seven or whatever. He would have been bar mitzvah at 12. He would have, that's right. When he was, yep. You know, mm -hmm. yep. Jerusalem. Yep, yep. 
So, so he had to learn enough Hebrew to recite the prayers and everything. So he, he spoke Aramaic, you know, that uh, right. by this time the Hebrew scriptures already required a certain amount of expertise because it was a dead language. Um, Aramaic uh, is, is very closely related to Hebrew, but they're not necessarily close enough. That, so I, I don't read Aramaic very well. I can read Hebrew fine. Um, but Aramaic, it, it's always... There's these words that I don't know in structures. I can't remember quite how they work. And so, so he would have had to do the reverse. Right. Um, but he yeah. scroll about Isaiah and, mm-hmm. you know, read it. He must have done a lot of scripture study because, right. you know, the, the scrolls are not easy to use. Mm-hmm. You can't just say, like, go to page 700 <laughs> because you have to unravel the scroll so you, and, and know how to figure out where the passage is, right? Um, so, so clearly he spent a lot of time in synagogue and was familiar with how it worked. And um, yeah, I mean, I just, I think these things are fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Anything else for today? Uh, I will, let me offer you uh, one observation about uh, God's presence. I may have said this last time, but I was asking the brothers toward the end of last year, getting ready for the new year, um, where can we look at the community and, and say God's grace is here? Like there's definitely the Holy Spirit's at work at this place in our community. And um, we have many ways of answering this, but I will just say for me, uh, one of the clear signs of God's presence is the oblate program. I mean, I really, really appreciate uh, just to have all of you stick around for an extra hour after mass and, and talk about, you know, listen about your faith, uh, that you, you go out and try to live Benedict and spirituality in the world. I'm very grateful for that. I think the growth of the program is a real sign of God's uh, presence among us. And so keep up the good work. <laughs> and uh, I'm very hopeful too with uh, Father Timothy taking over the administrative part of the job that uh, you'll just, you'll get more input from us because it's just difficult for me to stay on top of everything. Uh, but I will continue to give the talks for now. And um, pretty soon you'll hear, we'll, we're, we'll schedule a uh, day of uh, recollection for Lent, which is coming up pretty soon. And uh, we'll do one for Advent this year too. I just, I couldn't get my act together at Advent this year. So, all right. Well, let's, uh, let's conclude together with a prayer. And then um, uh, don't, don't forget to look for God in your everyday life. <laughs> in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you may do, I thank you. I'm ready for all. I accept all. Only let your will be done in me and in all your creatures. I wish no more than this, O Lord. Into your hands I commend my soul. I offer it to you with all the love of my heart. For I love you, Lord, and so need to give myself, to surrender myself into your hands without reserve and with boundless confidence. For you are my Father. Amen. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict. Pray for us. Right. Thank you.